Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. If you'd like to send them to us, feel free to join us on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Click on the Watch Live tab, and you'll be sent to where you can engage with us face-to-face or receive a countdown clock to the next time you can do so. On our website, if you want to cut out the middleman, maybe website's giving you problems. At the time of this recording, I admit to nothing. But uh, ccftucson.online.church will also be where you can stream and engage with us if that will, I guess, uh, cut out the middleman and any complications. Once again, ccftucson.online.church. If you'd like to join us on Facebook, it's Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and YouTube is A Reason for Hope. However, if you would prefer not to have to, I guess, engage with us on the terms of the corporate tech giants, we will, of course, have our email address open and available to receive your questions at any time. Say we don't have the opportunity to get to your question before the broadcast closes and our time, which is, of course, fleeting, runs out, we can still receive your questions there at questions, plural, F-O-R, hope, at gmail.com. We're looking forward to engaging with you. However you choose to engage with us, we, of course, want to encourage your prayers and as well your participation by sending us sincere Bible questions. As long as they are sincere, they are about the Bible, and they are asked in the form of a question, we'll be happy to provide sincerity in response with clarity, and we're looking forward to doing just that. But before we do anything, and as well getting to our Apologetics Monday topic, we want to start off in a word of prayer. Peter, would you like to start us off? Yep. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for all the love and the kindness that you show us. I do thank you for uh, your sovereignty and the confidence that we can have in in your plans and in your purposes. I do pray for uh, this time right now that those listening would be built up and blessed by it, that you would allow me and Sean to speak in a way that honors your word and your truth and in your name. Amen. That is true. Now. Given recent current events in the United States at the time of this recording, it hasn't stopped them before, but a very bizarre accusation has been made against Christians that it is a nationalist religion, that it is a force for political despot and despair for all those involved, and that the only way that we can avoid tragedy as a society is to make people either less Christian or to limit the influence that Christianity can have in politics. Why? Because Christianity produces nationalism. Now, obviously, they say those words, or maybe just jump the boat all the way to the end of the pier, and say Christians are Nazis, and want to basically influence people emotively that way. But when it comes to having not only an effective reason for the hope that is within us, but know that that hope isn't in our nationality, How do we make sure that those listening, as well as those who may listen to them in the future, are hearing reasonable responses to these accusations? Uh, Yeah, no, very interesting times that we live in. And uh, this isn't just relegated to the United States. This is actually around the world. There's this idea that there's a cultural 
kind of fascistic ideology that's bred within Christianity that wants to create some sort of a theocratic dictatorship. Uh, so all those who believe in Christian worldview and have values and morals in keeping with Christianity are going to try to impose those things top down on those who are in their same country. Now, there's a couple ways that we can tackle this and look at it. There is actually a very good video that Inspiring Philosophy, a YouTube channel, just put up where it's just basically statistics. It's like 10 minutes of statistics on his site showing that it's actually not Christians that are ultra-nationalistic, but it's people who claim to be Christians but actually aren't. In other words, people who are utilizing Christianity as like a smokescreen for what they're really trying to do. And he um, makes the distinction by noting that just Christianity, as far as its historical impact, is not a driving force for nationalism. However, people can be a driving force for these things. And then demonstrates that the more participation you have in nationalist groups is a result of a lack of Christian knowledge rather than the product of its abundance. Right. And and he touches on it a little bit, but I thought it would be kind of interesting to go into it in more detail on the show as a more philosophical type of a question. So um, when he is addressing it, he's just addressing the fact that, like Sean said, it's not really Christianity that's moving in this direction, but actually the less Christian someone is, the more likely they're going to be into this nationalistic type of ideology. So let me explain what nationalism is, kind of some benefits of it, some good qualities that are associated with nationalism, and I'm also going to juxtapose it against globalism, which I think is actually really bad. So, so in, in a nutshell, the definition of poison is too much of anything, right. even good things. So we want to note, where does that line exist? Exactly. So nationalism, you can see it in the name, it is similar to racism. So when you're talking about nationalism in a bad framework, what you're talking about is the belief that just like a racist believes that their race is inherently superior to all others and therefore everyone should either serve your race or be exterminated. That's that's racism. Uh, nationalism is exactly the same. It's my nation is better than any other nation and therefore everyone should either be ruled by us or just annihilated by us, destroyed by us or just totally out of our way. That's the idea of nationalism. Um Nationalism, as opposed to globalism, though, is preferable, and I'll try to explain this the best I can. So globalism is this really naive and modern idea that came with the League of Nations after the World War I, and then also after World War II, we made the UN, which was so much better. Um, I say that, obviously, sarcastically. Um, but at any rate, this idea that we're all kind of citizens of the world, and we all, we all just get along. Uh, the problem with the globalistic ideology, and by the way, the Antichrist will be a globalist. <laughs> so uh, I'm not saying that people who have a globalistic mentality are Antichrists, but what I am saying is that it's very naive. So giving them the, the, the best, uh, the benefit of the doubt, that they're, they're not evilly thinking like Dr. Evil, like I want to take over the world, uh, but they are just saying we should all just get along, regardless of what country you're from, regardless of what nationality, we're all kind of equal under God's eye. We shall get along. The problem is, is that while people are equal, cultures are not. Cultures are not equal. And that might shock some people when I say that, but this is actually a biblical idea. Let me read a passage to demonstrate this. So the main cultural divide that existed in the early church was the cultural divide between Jews and Gentiles. Pretty massive one, if you ask me. Uh, you have a group of people who 
derive their culture literally from God. Right? God very literally shaped their culture through giving them the Ten Commandments, through giving them the law through Moses, and allowing them to have a society, a culture, and a governmental system that was set up by God Almighty. So pretty good. And note, just to repeat the point you've already made so that those listening are familiar with it, you are making a distinction between people and culture. Mm -hmm. People are equal, cultures are not. The Jewish culture, not the Jewish people, was founded and established by God, that their set of values, their historical drive was centered by the foundation of goodness itself. Now note, did they obey it? No, no, but if we're asking <laughs> the culture <laughs> versus yeah. the people, there is a difference. Continue. Exactly. And that, that was Paul's point in Romans 2. He's like, they got the law. They're not keeping it, <laughs> but they do have the law, right? And so he's trying to pump them up. But at any rate, uh, there's this huge divide that's happening in the early church. The Jews are looking at the culture of the Gentiles and saying, we don't want this in our churches. This, they're, they're, they're dirty. They don't wash their hands. They don't eat kosher. They, uh, their ideals when it comes to sexuality are incredibly promiscuous. They don't have the ideology that we have about one man, one woman committed for life. There was just a lot of cultural differences and it did affect the morality. It affected the education. It affected the outlook, the worldview. Everything was different because of these vastly different cultures. And by the way, Any Christian who says, well, we have the scriptures and that's all we need. Yes, the scriptures are all you need, but culture influences more than you realize. And a lot of your understanding of scripture is informed by your culture. Is that good? No, but it's also something that you just can't avoid. We all do it. This is why, and again, for the first 1,500 years of Christianity, nobody accused, nobody commented on slavery. Forget Christians. Nobody in the world thought that slavery was a bad thing, including Christians. Now, when we look at the Bible, we ask, how on earth could anyone think that chattel slavery was a good idea, regardless of who's being enslaved? The whole world thought it was okay. And it wasn't until Christians actually started applying the scriptures to what was going on in their culture that slavery was abolished. But that's a subject for a different time. At any rate, cultures are obviously unequal. And cultures do have impacts on the way that people think and the way people behave. Because of that, there's this tension in the early church. And the Jews are starting to separate from the Gentiles. Now, look at Paul's response to this. He doesn't like it, but look at what he says, because sometimes we miss this. This is Galatians chapter 2, verse, uh, let's start in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not, look at this, and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified in faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Now, this is what Paul's saying. Their culture is sinful. He's not making any bones about it. Their culture is a mess, obviously. Where did our cultural ideas come from as pagans? My ancestors are pagans. Your ancestors are pagans. Unless you're a Jew, your ancestors are pagans. Uh, They came just from what we thought was best, right? It was people just using their blind reason and their theological ideologies to create worldviews and structures of governance as well as philosophy. And some of them they got right, but a lot of them they got wrong, very wrong. And so Paul is calling them out. He is saying they are wrong. Absolutely. However, 
Do not think that your culture saves you, Peter. So in other words, don't think too highly of your culture because even no matter how good it is, it's still not good enough to get you into heaven. That's why he's saying you got to live like a Gentile. In other words, you need to pursue salvation through Christ just like them. Your culture is better, but it is not good enough for the culture of heaven. Right? God's culture is way better than your culture. And the, the kingdom of heaven is definitely more righteous than any culture that exists on this earth. Now, this actually gives us a key to what we're going to talk about in a second when it comes to why doesn't Christianity create strong nationalism. But why focus, shouldn't it? Uh, why shouldn't it if people are actually following the text? Um, but real quick, this does show why glo- globalism is intensely naive. Some cultures are better than others. And if you have a globalistic mindset, you can't say that. Right? Yeah, there you is no to, culture. There is the globe. That's right. We're all just human beings. Right? We all should just get along. This is why you have incredibly naive things happening. Like after Vladimir Putin v- invaded Ukraine, you had this one just... God bless her. I know she's trying, but bless her heart, as they say in the American South. God bless her heart. Uh, But, you know, reading a poem about how if she was Vladimir Putin's mother, he would have never committed these atrocious war crimes. Uh, This kind of incredible naivety is rampant in people who are globalists who don't think that there's any real distinctions between culture. This is also why in our country, in the United States of America, we find it weird to attack people's culture, to say, like, when you come into the United States, you have to embrace United States culture. That's a good thing. Uh, instead, we're like, well, you know, who cares? You know, and if, if your culture cannot meet our standards in education, we'll just kind of lower the standards a little bit. And that's how we're going to deal with that problem. So here's the divide in ideas. You have people are good or you have cultures are good. Exactly. All people are good. Not even a globalist would say that. Right. All cultures are good. Not even a nationalist would say that. So make sure that we understand the point being made. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, cultures are not the same. And yes, some cultures are better than others. Um, I have been to Afghanistan. I've seen their culture. It is worse than ours. It is objectively worse than America's culture. Uh, There there are a lot of things that they there are certain things about their culture. I could say that are better. They're more communal. They tend to be more respectful towards their elders, things like that. But that's about it. That's about <laughs> that's about where their superiority ends. Uh, the rest of it is incredibly backwards. They're still living in mud huts. They don't have electricity yet. They don't have running water. Uh, they think that spousal abuse is good. They think that molesting of little boys is okay and tolerable. They don't allow women to be educated. And I could go on and on. And now that the Taliban is back in control of Afghanistan, you're going to see that culture coming back with a vengeance. It's already back. Uh, but at any rate, yeah, cultures are not equal. They're not the same. They don't think the same and therefore they're not going to get along. They don't even see things the same way that we do. So there's nothing wrong with looking at various cultures and saying ours is superior. Now where a nationalist gets off the beaten path and gets beyond patriotism and gets beyond objective truth is to say, therefore we must export our culture at the point of sword so that everybody thinks the way that we do. This would be an imperialistic type of nationalism right? This is something that Christianity should be ardently opposed to because Jesus actually gave us the mode in which we are supposed to export Christian culture. And how are we supposed to do that, Sean? By making disciples or followers of every nation, not to the expense or the elimination of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to teach them 
So notice it's an educational, not an identity-based relationship. All that I have commanded, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. When Jesus was challenged on his political motives by Pontius Pilate in John chapter 18, he said flat out that my kingdom is not of this world. And note that wasn't prone to future alteration. That is an ongoing statement of fact. He said, otherwise, my followers would fight. He said it'd be natural if I was trying to set up a empire, (laughs) I was an imperialist, that I would try to oppose Rome. But I'm not. My kingdom is already established. It's not of this world. That's why my followers don't or shouldn't fight. Exactly. So it's not that Christians who are in positions of political power can't fight, but it cannot be from a biblically uh, consistent standpoint. It cannot be for the purpose of spreading Christianity. It can be for protecting the interests of your nation, which, by the way, that is what government should do. That's what Paul lays out in Romans chapter 13. Governments are established to protect their people. So that's okay. But it can't be, uh, well, we just want to get rid of all the Muslims in the world. So we're just going to aggressively attack all the Islamic nations and set up a theocracy of Christianity. Uh, Now, interestingly, this is kind of the funny thing about this attack. Why is it? So if that's true... Why is it that historically Christians have not been imperialistic? Why is it that we have established countries, like all the countries in the West established by Christianity, why are they specifically into religious tolerance? Why don't they just say, if you're, forget about imperialistically exporting our ideologies and our theological ideals, we don't even enforce it in our own borders, right? We don't even say, if you're in America, you must become a Christian. The reason why is because in Christianity, the idea is that the only thing that makes you right with God is a personal decision to become in a relationship with him. Because of that, you can't force it. You can force an idea. You can force someone to think a certain way, but you cannot force somebody to willingly enter into a romantic, loving relationship with someone, right? So if I hold a gun to your head and say, marry this girl, that's going to be a sham of a marriage in the same way. The type of love that we're supposed to have for God is not just a general, like, I have good vibes towards the being who's above everything. It's Jesus is a person and I love him in a personal way. I have a relationship with him. That's the kind of affection that's going to bring you into the kingdom of God that cannot be forced and it cannot be uh, put on somebody by means of threat. That is why the founders of our country, as well as even in Europe, didn't do that, right? There are certain times where the church kind of failed a little bit (laughs) in trying to uh, not do that. But when they were living up to the principles in the Bible, they didn't do that. They focused heavily on evangelism. They focused heavily on reaching out to people in those kind of ways, in charity and things like that, but never on force when they're coming from the scriptures because that is what the scriptures tell us. Now, let's bring us to the main point. Christians who are more into Christianity will be less nationalistic. Why? Well, Sean already said, our kingdom's not of this world. If your kingdom's on this world, then you will be nationalistic because you can fall into the trap of thinking that your nation, your culture is the best. It's better than all the others, and we need to spread it 
in whatever means necessary. Or through the self-deceptive insecurity of saying that my nationality is under attack. And if I don't retaliate against those perceived attacks, then I am ultimately failing my nationality. My kingdom is under threat. But Jesus and John the Baptist both made the observation, the kingdom of God till this time suffers violence. And yet for some reason, Jesus never said, call to arms. Christianity is based on the example of Christ, not the takes or mistakes of his followers or lack thereof. Exactly. So, you know, when someone who's really following after the teachings of Christ, they'll recognize that in their own life. They'll say like, you know, I want to vote for people who agree with my ideology, with my philosophy, with my morality. I want to help educate my kids and the people around me in the principles of Christianity because I think they are good. I think that Jesus did establish them and I think that Jesus is the son of God. So who would know better about how to live a fulfilling human life than him? And yet Uh, Jesus himself also taught parables like the weed and the tares where he was in favor of allowing even bad weeds to grow among the good and ultimately to let final judgment sort them out. Now, does this mean that you allow the prosperity of evil? Not if it's within your power to resist, but the point being made is that it's not a motivating factor. That's right. So it's like you, you push for it as much as you can within your prerogatives, but if you don't get your way, the sky isn't falling. Jesus is in control. I'm a part of his kingdom. His kingdom's doing great. America might not be doing so great, but the kingdom of heaven is doing awesome, right? The kingdom of heaven is always doing great. Yeah, planets may not be doing too great right now, not too hot right now, but the kingdom of heaven is doing great, and the kingdom of heaven will eventually incorporate us into itself, right? It will raise up the kingdom of this earth, and all those who are faithful to Jesus will be raised up with it. But this leads to another important point. Well, then where does all this strict nationalist come from? Well, if you look through human history and you look at where nationalism really became problematic, it wasn't really in the ancient past when religion was really widespread. Nationalism became a huge problem in the 1900s. Now, why would it all of a sudden become a huge problem in the 1900s? To such an extent, by the way, that nationalism caused more deaths in war than all other centuries combined we're talking about tens of millions of people being killed in the wars of the 1900s what happened well when you start separating people from religion what other authority and what other standard do they have other than the nation if they don't if they're not fighting for something beyond this world then all they have is this world so when you look at adolf hitler when you look at joseph stalin these were nationalistic figures incredibly nationalistic figures Even Vladimir Putin, he's a nationalist, an incredible nationalist. Is he a Christian? No. Heck no, he's not a Christian. But his nationalism derives from this idea that this world is all I have. If I'm going to have a kingdom and I'm going to have a prosperous empire, I have to make one on this earth. That's the only way it's going to happen. And if I got to spread it by the means of the sword, that's fine. I will do that. So imperialism and attached to this ultra-nationalistic kind of again, dictatorial type of ideology, it stems from an atheism. It stems from this agnostic, nihilistic view of the world where the only thing that makes sense are the things that I make make sense. Or even in modern terms, the humanist mindset Mm -hmm. that people or culture are both the ideal and the paragon. That's right. So as Christians, again, and this is a call to all those who are believers and maybe you're getting a little too caught up in politics getting a little too frustrated a little bit too uh anxious about it just remember you are a citizen of heaven 
We are sojourners and strangers in this world, as the book of Hebrews says. We fight for this world. We care about this world. But ultimately, the main focus is not getting people into the culture of America. It's getting people into the culture of heaven. It's wanting to induct people into a heavenly mindset and help them meet our king. And he's glorious and he's magnificent and he's beautiful. And if your life is not about him, then it's off the mark for sure. Yeah. So just to recap passages like Matthew 28 verses 19 through 20, important truth statements like 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 through 17. We can go into passages and noting John chapter 18, Jesus is addressed before Pilate. We could note passages like you mentioned throughout the book of Hebrews and 2 Corinthians chapter 5, all stemming from this distancing between the Christian's hope, this Christian's kingdom, this Christian's place of belonging and source of security and identity being apart from this world. Does this mean that we condemn the world or destroy it? Does this mean that we condemn culture and seek to eliminate it? No. In fact, in the book of Revelation chapter 22, it says the honor of the nations will enter into the new creation. There is honor to be found there. Does it mean that everything they do is great? No. Just like everything that we have done has not been so great. But the point being made is this. We don't judge religion by its abusers. That is the street answer to this issue. And if you can build on that fact, no, they probably won't give you the time of day. Someone starts screaming in your face that you're a Nazi. I think the conversation's never actually been a conversation. I think it's more a shouting match. Just make sure that when you're talking to somebody, and note you should be talking to people about this, and they level that idea. Well, I haven't, or isn't Hitler a Nazi? Uh, Hitler was a Nazi, yes. Wasn't Hitler a <laughs> Christian? Well, then you could say uh, Hitler worshipped a Jew who said, love your enemies and pray for those who despitefully use you. That doesn't, doesn't sound like Hitler. <laughs> and note, let's say, let's pretend to grant it. Well, if he was a Christian, he was a very bad one, and yeah. that's where you get Christian nationalists. But if, on the other hand, you're going to say, I want better Christians. Christians, Christians that understand their Bible enough to know nationalism doesn't make sense in a Christian worldview, at least an informed one. The solution is more information, not less. The solution is more of Christianity, not less. So if we're going to combat this problem, be the solution. But if on the other hand, someone says, no, you are a problem, I think they've identified themselves as another issue entirely. They're not there for information. They're not there for resolution. They're there for elimination, which sounds kind of nationalistic now that I think about it. (laughs) So anyway, let us know if that was edifying for you. And getting out to our questions, let's start with one from Mac. How do you know if the Holy Spirit resides within you? Getting down to brass tacks. Yeah. How, how do we pass that test, as Paul said? Yeah. So the Holy Spirit, a very good question, by the way. Uh, so the Holy Spirit in the New Testament has a very interesting relationship with the followers of Christ. The Holy Spirit is a uh, obviously a co-equal, co-eternal person within the Trinity, which means that we should expect and do see his presence all throughout the Old Testament, but he has a very interesting interaction with the people of God in the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. So in the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit's role was to, number one, dwell in an actual place. He actually had a geographical location. That doesn't mean he limited his omnipresence, but it means he manifested himself in a glorious way in one particular location. That would be in the temple in Jerusalem after in the Holy of Holies, right, in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, The Holy Spirit was able to manifest his presence very specifically there. People could go to be near God by going to the temple, which is very cool. 
But then the Holy Spirit also had another role in which he would come upon people in the nation of Israel with power. We see this happen all over, all the time, actually. Samson's my favorite, right? So whenever Samson's doing something like Hercules, it says the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he does something. Whenever someone prophesies, they prophesy by the Holy Spirit. We even see the Holy Spirit uh, guiding people or leading people at various times throughout the Old Testament. Very, very interesting. And many passages of Scripture, by the way, are attributed to the Holy Spirit. So in the New Covenant, though, the Holy Spirit has a very different role. So Paul in 1 Corinthians says, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit no longer manifests his presence in one central geographical location, but instead he indwells all believers. Now that's going to be the key phrase. There are many passages that I could point you to, Mac, on your own time, you could read through them. I've quoted some of them just off the top of my head right now, but go through John 14 through 16, uh, go through Ephesians chapter two, I believe it is where Paul says that we are sealed by the Holy spirit of promise, uh, as well as the first Corinthians six passage that I mentioned, where he says that we are the temple of the Holy spirit. Now, all these passages put together, tell us, they let us know that, you know, that you have the Holy spirit within you. If you are saved now, the Holy spirit will make his presence manifested in various different ways. If you read the book of acts, Oftentimes, people received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit through the gift of tongues. Did it happen all the time? No. But there were various times in which the Holy Spirit made his presence known to people that he was poured out in power on the believers of Christ through miraculous works, including the speaking in tongues. That doesn't happen all the time, though. It doesn't even happen all the time in the book of Acts. And in modern times, it happens less and less. There was a very specific prophetic reason why the Holy Spirit was manifesting himself in that way in the book of Acts. And, and I don't have time to get into that right now, but if you have questions about it, you could ask me later. Uh, you could ask us later. That means that the Holy Spirit is not always going to make himself known, his indwelling in your life known in some sort of a supernatural, ooky spooky kind of way. Sometimes people do comment on that, meaning that when they came to God, they did experience, they had a, a supernatural experience with the Holy Spirit. It could have been a word of prophecy. It could have been just some amazing emotional experience with God, which we do get sometimes. Uh, it could have even just been a word from the Lord, you know, what they needed to hear in that moment. Uh, I think about this one guy's testimony where he was high on drugs when he called that to God. And honestly, when he called that to God, he was sobered up. The Holy Spirit came into his life. He was sobered up. And he started receiving passages of scripture that he hadn't really read before. And it helped him understand God's relationship with him. And it just it affirmed to him that he was known by God, that he, and he called out to God for salvation at that moment. So the Holy Spirit can do various things. Uh, I know someone else who, again, had a drug problem. There's kind of a, a theme here, as you can see. Uh, and again, had a drug problem and was experiencing some sort of a an entity in their room, some sort of a, probably a demonic entity because they were playing around with some stuff that they should have been playing around with, including the drugs. And the second that they called out to God, the, the entity left, they felt it leave the room and they felt like they were safe. So sometimes the Holy spirit will do that, but not all the time. All I'm trying to communicate to you right now, Mac, is that don't expect some sort of one size fits all experience with the Holy spirit. It's all different. And sometimes people don't get any experience with the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. They just believe in God, they're saved, and that's enough. But at that moment, 
whether you knew it or not, whether you experienced it or not, whether you felt it or not, the Holy Spirit indwelt you. But Sean, how do we know that we're saved? Well, the same way anyone knows they're saved, they can point to a time where they did the way God says works. <laughs> if we come to him on his terms, then Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I will by no ways cast out. How do we come to him? Well, Paul the Apostle gave us a good and condensed version, by the way, quoting the Old Testament. He said, if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, you might be saved. You will feel that you're saved. No, it says that you will be saved. And this is quoting the book of Joel chapter 2. So if the ongoing reality of the Christian life is on the truth statement that not how I feel or not how I perceive, but on the basis of what God has said, he has kept up his end of the bargain. That is my assurance. That is my security. So if I am put in a position where, let's say, it's either my own flesh or even the enemy trying to make me question my standing with God, well, you can really ruffle his feathers. <laughs> I don't know if he has feathers, but you get the idea. By saying, oh, well, I guess maybe I didn't receive the Lord. Well, Jesus, can you please forgive me for my sins? I recognize you as God because you died and rose from the dead. Please come into my heart as my Lord and Savior. Every single time he tries to deceive you and it leads you closer to the truth, you can imagine he'll try and go from another angle after a while because it's bringing you back to Jesus. It's understanding that how we're saved and how salvation actually works out in our lives, that is the indwelling of the Spirit. That is when you have the Spirit. And noting then as well other passages that note, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. That's quoting the book of Hebrews, which is quoting the Old Testament. We can note that this was God's policy in interacting with us from the beginning. But if he made a promise, and if we come to him at his word, understand that that's dependent on him, not in the happy or sad juices that are flowing through my big bag of fat that I call a brain. Make sure that that's your metric. Make sure that you start and end with God's word. And if you're given an opportunity where you say, you know, am I really saved? Well, let's make sure. Just take the opportunity to reaffirm your relationship with God, not because that somehow renews you like some bizarre cult, but in understanding and reminding yourself, this is how I was saved, that I came to God on his terms and that he has sealed me, not that I said the right words or that I kept the right rules or I attend the right church or fill in the gap. So that would be the best response. It's make sure you fall back on the truth, not on the uh, jimmies, I guess <laughs> would be an adjective. I'll get my thesaurus later. Yeah, good. All right. Uh, here's a question from Justin who wants to know, and this is awesome. Thank you for the question. Is it wrong to mark highlights in my Bible? Some people say, I love this. He who adds to the word, let a curse be on them. <laughs> He's kind of new. How do I take that verse in context? It's a uh, reference in Revelation 22. Well, let me uh, read the passage. This is Revelation 22 and verse 18. Is this the condemnation of highlighting your Bibles or putting notes? Even? We're, we're not laughing at you, Justin. We're laughing at the people who said that. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that's, that, that that's is fun. Ridiculous. Uh, verse 18 says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things... No Notice these things. God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. Well, I've, I've read the book. It's not what I want inflicted on me. Verse 19 says, If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, from the things which are written in this book. So high stakes there. Definitely not things we should play fast and loose with. And as is the trend in the book of Revelation, very little of it is new. In fact, 
exactly a quarter of it is new information. The majority of the book Revelation is spent quoting the Old Testament, and believe it or not, this is actually a quote from Deuteronomy chapter 4 and 16, where he notes, do not add or take away from my words, from my commands, so that you may follow them. So if this constant theme of not tampering with the word of God is the emphasis, you have to ask, what's the intention of a highlighter? Is it to remove? Is it to distort? Or is it to draw attention to something? Obviously, uh, if you're not familiar, people who have highlighters in their Bibles, they use translucent and very neon, very eye-catching material, kind of like this sticky note here, in order to make an emphasis on certain passages. Now note, if I were to look at this from the opposite stat and say what would be a legitimate way of removing God's word, it wouldn't be a neon or a translucent marker, I would say be using a black sharpie. This has no ability to see what's beyond it marked. And if I'm marking it to remove passages of scripture so that I don't have to read them, I'm redacting it like a you know FBI report or something. This is a black ops operation. Well, that would be a problem, but that's not the intent of a highlighter or what you're likely doing, Justin. Um, Obviously, that's a ridiculous handling of that passage. And if we're going to say people who take notes in their Bibles are adding to the word of God, I guarantee you the person who's taking those notes, unless they're Joseph Smith or Charles Tace Russell, doesn't consider them scripture. They're emphasizing what they do regard as scripture. And the only reason they're taking notes in it is because of the respect and desire they have to understand scripture. Someone speaking by the Holy Spirit provides a meaningful insight. And you write that down. That's not adding to the word of God. Why? Because A, you don't regard it as such. And B, no one else is going to regard it as such because they'll at least note there's a difference between the pen and the print. But the point is also being made in this. If I highlight in my Bible and it says, well, that's adding a color to your Bible. Well, what would we say to that? Yeah, it's a... Uh... That's what I would say. It's a bit ridiculous. So, like, yeah. obviously, again, you're you're highlighting something. The point is to emphasize something to yourself. There's nothing wrong with it. The easiest way to understand this is it's kind of like our modern day copyright laws. So, I've written two books now. If someone were to underline things in my book, write notes in my book, I'm not going to be too upset. Now, if someone alters the words of my book and then they pass it off as if I wrote those words. I would be upset about that, right? That's what's being uh, condemned here. It would be someone intentionally altering the word of God and attributing it to God. That's what's being spoken about, not highlighting or writing something in the margins. All right. Uh, Let us know if that helps you out, Justin. Thank you for it. Um, Here's another interesting one, and I received this from a friend of mine in Florida. Uh, Several questions, in fact, and these, again, just like with the highlighter one, are... I guess on the wrong side of amusing, but nonetheless, we'll still take the time to deal with them. Uh, This first one was sent along. It's an article that reads, 1,500-year-old Bible claims Jesus Christ was not crucified, Vatican in awe. And then the article goes on to say, much to the dismay of the Vatican, an approximately 1,500 to 2,000-year-old Bible was found in Turkey in the Ethnography Museum of Ankara. Discovered and kept in secret in the year 2000, the book contains the Gospel of Barnabas. More on that in a moment. A disciple of Christ, which shows that Jesus (laughs) was not crucified, nor is he the Son of God, but a prophet. The book also calls the Apostle Paul the imposter. 
The book also claims that Jesus ascended into heaven alive, that Judas Iscariot was crucified in his place. According to reports, experts and religious authorities in Tehran insist the book is original. The book itself is written with gold lettering onto loosely leather, tied leather and Aramaic, the language of Jesus Christ. And then there's a footnote, amazing how Christians aren't screaming about this book. Well, we won't start screaming, but we'll certainly start talking. Uh, was even a syllable of that article accurate? No. Uh, so, first of all, if it's 1,500 years old, uh, I hate to tell them this, but the events of Jesus' life were 2,000 years ago. So 1,500 years misses the mark by a couple hundred years. So what happened after the death of Christ and actually the death of the apostles is we had these works that some people call the Gnostics or the pseudepigra, pseudepigraphas, if you want a fancy word for it. just basically means fake writings, right? So fake names were ascribed to these books to give them a little bit more authenticity and umph for people who wouldn't care. And how would they know that just in the most plain language possible? It's because they didn't exist until centuries after the ones who supposedly wrote them had died. Yeah. So unless these guys are around for a, a long, long time, right? Yeah, <laughs> and unless something years. else happened. But the point you yeah. made is this. If the cover was a lie, that says a lot about the words that come after the cover. Now, actually, I do like that article because here's the thing. Uh, we've known this for, for a while. Muhammad was not the most critically, what's the most diplomatic way to say this? He wasn't exactly the most scholarly, (laughs) astute individual when it came to stories. So one of the problems with Muhammad is that he was illiterate. He couldn't actually read or write. This is something that's emphasized many, many times within the Hadith literature as well as the Quran. Yeah, one of the derogatory nicknames his critics gave him was the ear because whenever he heard something, he recited as if it was history. And the Jews would make fun of him in... um, what was called then Yathrib, now it's called Medina, and say, that, that's tales of the ancients. And then he invented Quran passages and saying, they say that these are tales of the ancients, but they forget of old and all this other fun stuff. Yeah, so in the Quran, there are actually stories, uh, like, for instance, the story of Alexander the Great traveling so far west that he found the place where the sun sets and yep. ascends in a pool of muddy water. Uh, he also traveled so far east that he found the place where the sun rises, and he found a people that were scorched by it because they were so close to the sun. Obviously, it's ridiculous. But he pulled this story. We know where he pulled the story from. Yeah, the Alexander um, romances. This it, was many hundreds of years before Muhammad, but also many hundreds of years after him. People yeah. can make up mythology, but the point being made is this. He treated them as history, that's and right. that's a he problem. Thought, yeah, he thought they were history. And we also find things within the Quran that are not contained in any of our Gospels. Like, for instance, it talks about Jesus making clay birds and turning them into real birds. We know where that comes from. It comes with the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas was not written by Thomas. How do we know that? Because it was written 200 years after Thomas died. After he was (laughs) impaled by a spear and skinned alive in India. So a little tough for him to write a book in those circumstances. 100 Uh, years afterwards as well. I mean, I I can maybe uh, justify him being whole buried somewhere and then just came back to write something real quick. But if you don't have your skin, that that really, you know, rigor mortis, you can't (laughs) hold the pen. It's very difficult. A little tough. We're we're being funny. (laughs) So, you know, there's that story. And then obviously you get to the main uh, the main issue, which is in Surah 4, chapter 4, verse 157, the Quranic author says that Jesus was not crucified, neither was he killed, but it was made to appear that way. And then later on, various people like, uh, I'm spacing on his name right now, Ibn, Ibn Asak. No, not Ibn Asak. Kathir, um, I believe. Ibn Kathir, that's right. Ibn Kathir commented that possibly what happened is that Allah 
brought Jesus up into heaven whole and then switched him out with Judas Iscariot on the cross. This is called the substitution theory. Very popular in Sunni Islam. It's not the only theory, but it's one of the theories. Now, what this article shows is it shows, wow, there was a heretical book being passed around in the Middle East around the time that Muhammad was there. And wouldn't you know it, that story makes it into the Quran. Does that make it authentic? No, but it gives us a lot more reason to doubt Muhammad. It gives us no reason to doubt the Gospels, but it gives us a lot of reason to doubt Muhammad. And it also ends up actually compounding the issue because it also gives us more reasons to doubt where they got that article from. Because the Gospel of Barnabas actually never existed even at the time of Muhammad. It existed 800 years after him. <laughs> the first copy was not written in Aramaic, and it wasn't 2,000 years old. It was 1,500 years after Christ, <laughs> and of course, our only fragmentary ex uh, evidences of it are in Spanish in Spain, when it was under Muslim occupation, known then as Andalusia. It's close to Aramaic. Yeah, so. and uh, <laughs> also noting that point as well, if we ask what is our earliest complete copy, what we can actually do with it, what one is actually available in the Vatican, it is also a Spanish translation, and it is available for viewing. They are openly lying about it, if it was only a hundred years old. But noting this point, if someone says something on the internet, be careful, do your homework. You see things like the gospel of Barnabas, maybe look up what Christians have had to say in response to that. I would highly recommend Islam critiques Barnabas, a beloved forgery where he goes scholarly through all of the people who have done critiques, both Muslim and Christian in order to clarify its dating was in the middle ages, not the time of Christ. And also note as well, just to clarify the dictionary, people say, Oh, a 1500 year old Bible was found. And then they mention one book. The Bible isn't a book. It's a collection of 66 books, all of which are verified according to a very important standard and metric, which is what brings us to our second question. This is on Reddit. We're already off to a good start, but nonetheless, <laughs> uh, he sent it along to me, and I think it's worth mentioning. We won't mention the username, but it's under the subreddit for the occult. So let's have fun. Uh, sometimes I worry that Christianity has been true this whole time, and I've been deceived by the devil, especially because of 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14. They do us the favor of quoting half of it. It says, no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. Now, why don't you turn to the full passage so we can clarify his point, but notice how the occultist Redditor handles this. How do we know that angels we contact are benevolent spirits and not just the Christian devil disguising himself as an angel, as the Bible says he can do? So in this post, we essentially have three assertions, two of which are not accurate. First, it is under the false assumption that everything we've received in the Bible, the truth of Christianity, is determined by the word of angels. That is false. Only two people in the Old Testament and one in the New were given their messages from God from angels, from these heavenly creatures, these messengers. That's what angel means. And those were Zechariah. Those were Ezekiel, or Daniel, excuse me. And then in the New Testament, it was the Apostle John when he received revelation. So when we ask the question, is the integrity of the Bible, the reliability of the Bible, in question because angels can lie? And that's the second false assumption, that if Satan can look like an angel, that means that every angel is now suspect of being Satan. So if someone could lie, that means I can be certain that they did lie. Why? Well, Prove to me a negative. 
which is logically fallacious. So tell me they weren't lying. Well, this is what brings us to the worthwhile question in all of this. How do we be critical spiritual consumers? What test were the books of the Bible put under that we regard these above others? And why is it that, that say, things like Barnabas, 1,500 years after the fact, were left out? Why is it that even legitimate writings of the apostles, perhaps, like the Shepherd of Hermas, were not included within? Why is it that we don't, uh, say, for example, have the book of Jasher in the Old Testament or the uh, books of the kings, not first or second kings, but the wars of the kings and so forth? All these other mentions of books that aren't in the Bible but are mentioned in the Bible, why is it that they were included and others were not? Yeah, so uh, I want to step... Uh go over a couple things real quick yeah, there's I just a to lot establish this a little bit because there's a lot there and even though it's a ridiculous question i think that there are some kind of interesting things within it that we can discuss so uh the first one is is how do we know and this is uh, a more intelligent way <laughs> no offense uh of no, wording this question this is from to, the occultist yeah. on reddit <laughs> <laughs> a more intelligent way of wording this would be how do you know that god is benevolent and not a cosmic deceiver Right. That, that could be a much more uh, logical question and a much more reasonable one. So in other words, how do we know that God would want to give us the truth or would want to protect his truth? How do we know that God doesn't just isn't just some trickster in the sky and is allowing lies to run rampant and he's not trying to protect any particular truth and he's just allowing lies to, to be whatever you want? Now, that's something that's very interesting. It's actually something that um, Islam teaches, which is kind of funny, speaking of Islam, that God is a trickster. Yeah, al makar is one of his 99 names, the great deceiver. That's right. So... How do we know that? C.S. Lewis, I think, did the best job of exploring how we can know for a fact that God isn't this way. And he bases it on an essential nature of reality. So in reality, there are things that are fundamental and then there are things that are aberrant. In other words, there are things that just exist and then there are things that are defined in the absence of its existence. So, for instance, the sun, light. Light exists. Darkness is just something that exists in the absence of light. It's not really a thing. It's just the absence of a thing. Same with cold. Cold doesn't really exist. Heat exists. Cold is just the absence of heat. So in morality or ethics, what do we see? Do we see any negative existing in and of itself? Now, C.S. Lewis does a very good job of pointing out that we don't. People do evil things, sure, but they are always doing evil things in the pursuit of something good. So, for instance, somebody might cheat on their wife, but the reason why they're cheating on their wife, which is a wrong thing, is they're pursuing some sort of a sexual pleasure, which is a good thing, right? Sexual pleasure is a good thing. They're just pursuing it in a wrong direction. Someone might find malicious pleasure in torturing another person, but again, they're not torturing the person just to do an evil act. They're doing it because the evil act gives them pleasure and pleasure is a good thing. Uh, nobody is greedy for no reason. They're greedy because they like goods and goods are good, right? So very simple. Nobody does evil for evil's sake, but people do uh, do good for goodness sake. That means that good must be the center and evil must be the aberrant. So in other words, there is no such thing as evil. Evil is simply the absence of good, it is the deprivation of good, which would give us the idea of if there is a creator, God, who created all things, then that means that his nature must be benevolent. It must be all good because goodness has to come from somewhere, 
And if goodness is the only thing that that really exists and evil is just the absence of it, then therefore God must be good. Now, I know it's a lot of philosophy. If you want an even better explanation than what I just gave you, you can look up the ontological argument. And the ontological argument essentially goes over God's characteristics and how we can philosophically reason to the point of an all-powerful, all-benevolent God. But at any rate, so if we know that God is all-benevolent and we know that he is the first thing, that he exists in and of himself, then that means that any evil that exists within this world must be something that exists in opposition to God. This is why we call Satan Satan. He's the adversary. He stands opposed to God, but he is not an equal and opposite force to God. He is just simply something that stands in opposition to God. He is a created being, and he doesn't have as much power, near as much power as God. Therefore, if God wants to preserve and establish truth, since he is all-powerful and all-good, he would not only want to do it because he's all-good, but he's all-powerful, so he would be able to do it. And this means that we as Christians should know that the word of God has the potential for being true. We haven't proven it's true yet, but it has the potential for being true. We shouldn't just doubt it on the basis that deception exists. So that would be ridiculous to say, well, deception exists, so I'm not going to believe anything. That's ridiculous. Do you believe that statement you just made? Because deception exists, right? So obviously there has to be some sort of a fundamental base truth that we accept before we could even move on in any real or meaningful way. But right. Then when you go into the Bible, how could we believe that the Bible is true if there are ways that supernatural entities can lie to us? Which, by the way, the Bible warns us about. <laughs> in the book of Galatians, Paul warns about it, even an angel from heaven preaching a gospel that the Bible doesn't purport. And, by the way, full disclosure, there's debate about this within Christian circles. I believe that both Muhammad and Joseph Smith were met by spiritual entities. I don't think they were benevolent entities, but I think they were met by spiritual entities. They didn't think they were benevolent either. Yeah, no, no they did not. Uh, Muhammad became suicidal, and Joseph Smith felt not too great afterwards either. Right? So uh, you, you have these entities encountering them and deceiving them. So yes, uh, Christians don't deny that that is the case. The Bible does say it. The Bible means it. Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light, and he does it, and he does deceive people. So how can we know that whatever revelation we get from some sort of a divine source is actually divine in nature and not something that is intentionally deceptive? Well, the Bible sets up a couple standards for itself, which I think are fair. The first one is, if God is timeless and all of his other creations exist in time, then logically he would be the only one that knows the future, right? Other people can guess. I can make uh, logical or rational guesses at what I think the future will look like, but I'll be right sometimes and I'll be wrong sometimes. So only God has the capacity to be right all the time. Everything that he says has to be correct. Well, guess what? The Bible sets itself a standard like this. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses writes that if any prophet comes to you and gives a word and doesn't come to pass, he is not a prophet and you should not fear him and you should actually stone him. So that's pretty, I think that's fair, right? That's a fair thing to say that if someone is speaking on behalf of God, they ought to be able to predict things in the place of God. Now that might sound weird to you, but consider this, a third of your Bible is prophetic scripture, right? So if that wasn't a big deal, then God wouldn't have done that. But because this is a big deal and a good standard for his word, God made it a point to make literally one third of your Bible prophetic. 
Now, it's not prophetic to us because a lot of things that were prophesied have already happened in the past. They were meant to verify the scriptures that were being given. That's right. Which is why it meets its own standard. That's right. Uh, Beyond that, uh, a lot of the prophets were given various miracles. Now, we are told that Satan is able to do some miracles. But again, he is a created being and his powers are limited. We see this within Moses when he is doing the miracles uh, I'm sorry, not the miracles, the uh, the judgments of Egypt, the 10 plagues. The magicians were able to do some through sleight of hand or some other methodology. Lying wonders. Or lying wonders. But they weren't able to do all of what Moses was able to do. Moses was able to be superior. So what are the limits to Satan's power? What can he do and what can't he reasonably do? The things that only God could do. He can't give life to non-life. He can't, of course, do things that are legitimate in violation of nature. And we, of course, can also note that he is not going to go back on his word. He's going to be truthful in what he preaches. Obviously, the magicians of Pharaoh's court were able to go back on their word any time that they wished. They were able to duplicate but not generate these miracles, come up with explanations. And as we read in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, the foundational nature of what makes something demonic isn't the supernatural nature it is the deceptive nature it's the message not in the means so note those points if anyone were to say i'm speaking in the name of god which is why those books are in our bibles the authors all made that claim they would be under capital punishment accountability not the sort of thing you play fast and loose with to be accurate to be consistent about who and which god they were talking about and they also needed to verify words with deeds that is why we listen to this Bible over others, not because something called itself an angel and said, believe me, because I'm an angel. No, you test even, as Galatians chapter 1 says, even if an angel from heaven gives to you any other gospel than what you have received, what's been verified, let them be accursed. So, noting that point. Got 15 seconds. Uh, Isaiah wants to know if there's a language only God and the angels speak to one another. I think that's a reference to 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Um, they only condescend to us and speak our languages. I don't think they need it, but a point being made is if you have an ear on an angel, I guess there is a purpose for it, but we don't read of any. And lastly, uh, well, the music is starting, but we'll just make this point. Is the Antichrist going to be a nice guy and uh, support globalism? Find out, but let's focus on Jesus Christ. God bless you. We'll see you all again tomorrow. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.